What is the sound sensor? You can talk. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. everything is going? Okay. Namaste to all of you. I was thinking about um, what I will talk about tonight because I didn't restart with the Gospel of Luke and other major topics like that, like a series of lectures. It's still open. It's still open season, you know, so you can come up with your proposals, needs, if you want to hear one of the subjects. Of course, many of the lectures are already uploaded and you can hear them from the past. But um, I was thinking and I received a few good questions like the famous story about false detachment and real detachment and so on. I thought that those were quite technical questions because uh, they, you know, I would uh, answer those questions uh, in a Q&A. So on Tuesday when I do the Q&A, those questions are on to be answered. They are very good questions. We still have a few excellent questions left from Tuesday. But I thought that those would address a particular subject. We explain it in 20 minutes. And then um, that is not really the subject of a satsang, of a presentation. And one of the questions which I received um, in this week, nevertheless, it brought up a bigger subject, because here, locally in Pangani Nagama, we were having some um, we were having some um, debate about the pure aspects of Manipura and the more impure aspects of Manipura. And uh, somebody, I know, like, we have seen uh, some movies, like the Judo Saga in our family circle here. And um, people were asking, well, then how can Manipura help you in a constructive way, in a beneficial way on the path of spirituality, on the path of spiritualization? And uh, this uh, make me, made me think that it would be nice to make a presentation. Let's sum up a little bit. Uh, this story with, uh, with all the chakras, because it's something which uh, I do in the Awakening of the Spirit retreat. But there has not been an Awakening of the Spirit retreat for the last three years. The so-called Agama retreat which we usually do in the month of August. Perhaps this year there will be some of it running again. And um, there I'm trying to make people understand, and that's why I thought, you know, part of me thinks that this satsang which I want to do will be particularly technical or will be for people who understand chakras, yoga practice. No, it would be of the level of Q&A or even further up. 
But on the other hand, this is something which we do in a retreat where people can openly come and participate in uh, Agama practices and understand better these things. So I thought eventually, let it be there. It's, uh, you can consider it a sort of a master class for the awakening of the spirit retreat um, from August, if it will happen or when it will happen again. And um, let's look a little bit at the human evolution and the challenges that it brings along with the chakras because the understanding of Agama is the understanding of energy and everything with energy we understand via the chakras. The alpha and the omega of energy is or are the chakras. They are controlling everything. Everything is going through that prism. So for our students, it's always very easy to understand things via the angle of the chakras. Although people who have not been too much in Agama or in Tantric Yoga, if when we speak about Manipura or when we speak about Anahata or when we speak about... They don't fully understand if I say on Manipura, this is helping you a lot, this can be an obstacle. And people will say, well, where did he get that from? Definitely a student of Agama who has done a level, two levels, three levels, or 13 levels of Agama is uh, understanding perfectly what we are saying there. Somebody who is uh, just listening to this satsang out of curiosity, but not having been involved at all with Agama, will have some difficulties because um, there, is a, there is a profound knowledge of the chakras that is related with Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Tantric Yoga, what we do here. And um, that thing might elude you. So um, if, you don't, if you feel that you don't understand everything, don't worry. All these things are completely dovetailing, like they are homologated, they are completely checked, and they fit 100% in the Tantric tradition. These are not um, the attempt of doing some speculative things. They are exactly what we do. They are exactly what we are working with. So, of course, we start always from the idea that some people, some people, and there are not many, they have a peculiar interest in yoga. And I don't want to be selfish to try to get everything to yoga, to hoard everything on yoga. I would say, first of all, that there are people who are interested generally in spirituality or methods of evolution. This is all starting because of the famous motivator, the thing which makes the difference which we call Ishvara Pranidhana or aspiration, that some people simply think that life as it is taught in school and in television and in the society is way too boring, it's way too flat, that there definitely must be more to it than the fact that you are born, you get educated, you get a job, you get a family, you raise a couple of kids, then you start getting old and sick and you die. And in the end, there are people who say, if I knew that this would be my life, 
I would have committed suicide when I was 15 years old already. You know, it's like it's not worth it to go through all that. It's just a flat thing. I'm supposed to live like a cow. I'm supposed to live like my dog, you know, that it just gets born and it grows up and it receives food every day and it sleeps. And then one day it gets old and it will have to be put to death or it will die of natural causes. That's what it is, some biological thing. I'm a piece of flesh which is just getting older by every year and I have to feed this piece of flesh and I have to give it sleep. And that's what makes me happy that I live biologically like this. And, and oh, but no, I had a job and in this job, uh, I don't even know what to say I did. Uh, you know, I gave food to a hundred hungry children in Africa. It's like, it's a great thing. You know, it's not, I'm not like uh, Walter who is selling tobacco or booze in a kiosk. I have given food to a hundred hungry children in Africa, you know. And then I still get old and I die. So it's like, yeah, you know, I had a life. And in this life, I had a little bit of a job and a little bit of this. And like, I don't know how you are. I, I for one, felt when I was young that if this is what my life is going to be like, I'm going to choke and die. And I could as well die young because it didn't make any difference. And uh, I discovered I was not alone. There were some people called Shivananda, Yogananda, Ramakrishna, who thought in the same way. So I discovered that if I'm a weirdo, at least there are other weirdos like me, and we have a small circle of weirdos there, because there are people who don't want their life to be banal. And then some people try to say, oh, my life was not banal. I did bungee jumping and skydiving at least 310 times. In my opinion, it's still banal and it means nothing. No? You just try to give yourself some adrenaline rushes for fear of getting bored. And the other people, when you tell them this, they revolt. And they say, so what? Have you done more in your life? Like what can a human being get more? Isn't everybody living their lives like this? Why should you be upset that people live their lives banal, trite, average like this? You know, like, is there something? Are there any diamonds that some people can find in the dust and we didn't find them? Yes, 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 yes. A thousand times. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That there is, there is much more. Much more is possible. Much more is possible. And much more is possible is either that you live a life of adventure. You know, at least in this life, I have lived the life of Genghis Khan. I have killed tens of thousands of people and I've become the king of Mongolia. And I have done this like it's unforgettable, man. Yeah. There is one way to have a different life by simply going to some extremes of violence, of sex, of, uh, you know, winning the Nobel Prize in physics or something, you know. You go to some extreme and some people think that, oh, I didn't have two children. I had 22 children. Okay, if you think that that can make a life exciting so you don't commit suicide when you are 15 years old because you have something to look forward to. Maybe it works for you. But I'm telling you and all those who are deep in yoga, up till here in yoga, 
all of them know that I'm talking the truth, even that is not enough. Oh, I just put my money with Warren Buffett, and before I knew it, I had $100 million in my bank account. Sure. You know, and like the Italian expression says, and then you die. Life is a bitch, and then you die. You know, it's like, again, we have the same problem, that there are people in this world who discover that there are alternatives. Unfortunately, the percentage of these people becomes smaller and smaller because the school, the education, eh, creates skepticism, creates blindness, creates animalistic attachment to the body and to the pleasures of life. And people don't even consider that there is something else, that you could search for something else. And thus, at the time of Krishna, which was three, four thousand years ago or more, maybe four thousand, five hundred, five thousand years ago, Krishna was telling to Arjuna, oh Arjuna, one person in a thousand, or Sanskrit being a bit of a poetic language, it could be said one person in thousands is concretely doing something for their evolution, for their spiritual betterment. Like people who really act and they are ready to do something, not just talk about it. And thus, uh, it is expected that if in India, 4,000 years ago, one person in a thousand or less, because if it's in thousands, then it becomes even less. If 0.1% of the population or less was interested in spirituality and in conquering the infinite, in opening up to the infinite, and they believed it's possible. Because the problem is that many people today will say, yeah, but you are selling illusions. It's not even possible. Who did that? Whom did you know that did that? That's where it has gone. And then we are having maybe today one person in 10,000 or less. You come, in, you come from a country where 10 million people live, maybe a thousand people are active spiritual practitioners. And thus, we start from the very fact that we know that a number of people are ready to do something. They feel the average life unsatisfactory, and they feel that if life is only what you see in television and in Hollywood movies then you could as well commit suicide because there is nothing exciting about it. It's all an ordeal, you know. And I have encountered so many people who came in the beginning of their yoga and they told me, Swamiji, I wish I was never born. God is the greatest sadistic creature or whatever it is in this universe, if there is a God, because they didn't even know that, because he made me be born in this body and live this life. I wish I was never born. I wish I did not have to run through this ordeal. Such people, if they would reach at the level of Shivananda and Milarepa and Ramakrishna, or if you prefer a female saint like Mananda Mai or some other great yogini, they would never say this bullshit. They would never. Saying this bullshit, it shows that life sucks, 
but you never bothered to find a viable solution. Like, yes, life sucks Buddha after he lived for 30 years as a prince. He discovered the first noble truth. He discovered all four of them, but it took a time before he put order in his brains and he presented it as a coherent system. The first of the noble four noble truths of Buddha, the essence, the boil-down essence of his teaching is life is pain. Life consists of suffering. Buddha did not say, and sometimes you see a beautiful sunset, and he simply said that sunset is a moment of forgetfulness of your pain. It doesn't change the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is that life on planet Earth, in Kali Yuga, sucks. And everything is very limited, and living the life of a cow being born and fed and growing up and getting old and sick and dying, and maybe meanwhile making the $10 million or having some progeny, some people shrug their shoulders and they say, "Eh, what can you expect more from? You can, you can. Exactly this blindness is the tragic thing. This hopelessness that people do not see that there is something And from Jesus to Buddha and from Milarepa to Rumi, everybody keeps telling you about this. Come, 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 come wherever you are, says Rumi. Whoever you are, come, come, let's practice. Let's love God together. Come. He says it doesn't matter if you are Muslim or Christian or something. Just come, come. Let's give ourselves. Let's do this thing. No, this is what spiritual people try to tell you. Even Vivekananda could not understand it. He asked his guru, okay, he had not reached enlightenment by that time, and he's asking Ramakrishna, this God that you talk about so convincingly and so on, do you see him? And Ramakrishna looked at him, he was one of the most simple persons you can imagine, and he said, I can see God better than I can see you now. You Like, what more do you want? So either Ramakrishna was a liar, or indeed there is something which surpasses enormously these flat goals of the daily life. And the fact that some people can put up with these flat goals of the daily life is from a spiritual standpoint, it's a defeat. It's like you are putting your head down and you say, put the heavy yoke of Maya on my neck, And I'm just, okay, I'll not commit suicide because Swamiji or whoever taught us in the art of dying that it's a very big sin and it will be paid with very heavy consequences karmically. So I guess I will not take my life, but I will just go until God hits me with a lightning stroke or whatever will happen. And I will, you know, I'll just get old and die and that's it, you know. But it's it's flat, it's flat. It's, it's accepting a defeat. No, the, about when, when the Vedic thinkers wrote the laws of Manu, which were the first spiritual code of a society in the Vedic society, like how to live, how to know, they said that Manu was like the first man who dared to raise his eyes to heaven. Like in staying, instead of staying like an ox and looking only at the earth, you know, uh, there I am struggling every day to just go on through life and die. You know, rise your eyes to heaven and to 
to have this boldness of the spirit to know that something is possible. Yes, it's true. There are people who use yoga for other purposes. Like people say, at least if I could do telepathy or if I could see people's auras or if I could do pranayama for 12 years and lift in the air and levitate, you know, do something which is outrageous when bend spoons like Uri Geller or something, you know, do something outrageous so at least I can be a bit different from other people. No, at least people can say this one is really weird. This one can do funny things and so on. Simply because of this fear of banality. Fear that life has no color in the end. You know, everybody lives the same life. And it's like a long, long row of seven or eight billion people going to the slaughterhouse, all of them. In the end of this pathway... There is a building called Slaughterhouse, which is the undertaker, which will burn you or put you into the ground, and that's the end of it, you know? What has happened meanwhile? So some people, and I have been blessed to have that, and I noticed I was not alone. Some people want to live their lives differently. And they, they, want, they want to raise their head to heaven and to try. Nobody can promise that you will succeed now, here, in six months, or something like that. Although metaphysically, those who study metaphysics know that everybody can promise, and I can promise you right now, that you will make it to the top. But as Yogananda says, it can take two million years, you know, so it's like, uh, it's not about in six months or in six years or something. So, uh, people have this aspiration. And then as they try to go to do something exceptional with their lives, yes, I can use yoga because I ate like a pig and I ate stupid things and I ate carcinogenic things. And then eventually I discovered I had a cancer. And somebody taught me that yoga can heal a cancer or help you with the remission of the cancer. So I did it, and I'm very grateful. Yoga is great. That's great. We are very happy when people use yoga for disease, health, body, when they use yoga for their daily life, concentration for an exam, or so when they use yoga even for some paranormal abilities, at least give some prana to a plant, learn to use your hands, to channel prana through your hands, or other similar things. <coughs> but... There is also this dimension of yoga, know that we have this aspiration, and this aspiration is telling us, don't put up with mediocrity, don't accept it, and we try to make something. And as when we try to make something out of our lives, then we discover that we are not all starting from the same place. Some people have a very high IQ, which means they are very, very smart. And some people can have, even among the spiritual seekers, they can have an IQ which is below 100, which means they are not the smartest people in the room. So it's possible. Some people have an excellent physical body endowed with great vitality in Muladhara and the low chakras. Some people are very vata dosha and they do not have too much vitality to spend. No, they will always have to be careful for the rest of their lives to keep themselves grounded 
and full of vitality. And the story continues like we know we are not the same. Some people have been suppressed and uh, their uncle or somebody when you were five years old told you, oh, you are the ugly little duckling, you are not beautiful at all, you know, and so on. Then you get hypnotized with this. Then you get to be 16 years old and you become sexually active or anyhow you become a teenager. And then you discover with surprise that you are completely self-hypnotized, that you are not attractive, that your body is not good, that you are this. You know, somebody is uh, eyeing you for sex and you are hiding in a conch shell, you know, like, no, not me. I'm the ugly little duckling, you know. And it all comes from some stupid trauma, which you got in kindergarten, which you got from a member of your family, which you got God knows when. So some people come to yoga, come to, they are neurotic, they are twisted, they are peculiar. No? And we translate this in yoga always through the chakras. Like we, we have people who come to yoga and have more muladhara or less muladhara, more Manipura or less Manipura, and their Manipura, because that's where the question started from, their Manipura is more pure or less pure, more harmonious or less harmonious, and then the question is, what are they going to do along the path? That's why when we look at it from this standpoint, we can make a synthesis so that all those of you who are listening, you can have a little bit of a perspective, like how can these chakras, how can these energies, how can these impurities, how can these qualities help me into searching for a deeper goal or hinder me from reaching a deeper goal? Because there are situations in which your muladhara is your best friend.
One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Okay. We are ready to go to part two. Just give me the thumbs up when I'm on. Okay. Okay, welcome to part two. We had some technical difficulties here. Now we continue. So this long uh, preamble basically helped me to tell you that, okay, let's suppose you have this strange virus that you have aspiration and you want to make your life exceptional, outrageous, and not outrageous in the horizontal way by just doing 310 bungee jumps and skydive jumps in your life, but by doing it outrageous, by finding cosmic consciousness, by finding the true love, by finding the ultimate meaning of things, the Buddha nature of all things and all that, by finding the truth with a capital T. And then when you look at your preliminary conditions, then you find out that some of them, on each chakra, there are powers that you have and that there are things which hinder you. And that's what we were talking about when uh, this question was asked of me, that we started from some people who are having a good Manipura and they were searching the path, the way, and some, it was in the Japanese culture, and uh, some people had lost their way, had lost the path. They were supposed to be on a path. In that case, it was with martial arts, but actually they were no longer on the path. They were just hooligans, violent people, people who had lost any deeper meaning in that quest. And thus, I said, why don't we look at all of them a little bit quickly in the... Awakening of the Spirit, we take a session of three hours for each one of them meditating on the cleansing of the different shleshas, of the different impurities in the chakras. But like this, it's maybe worth it for you to have a unitary image to think about it. So is Muladhara chakra a quality? It's the lowest chakra. But paradoxically, in spirituality, many gurus, they found it to be a quality until it became a defect, until it became a big problem. So a big muladhara chakra is like a big kundalini. A big muladhara chakra is a very intense physicality. It's a very intense presence in the physical world. And... Uh, this means that when you start going up, you go up exactly like a major rocket from a launch pad, you know, like the Cape Canaveral rockets which put up space shuttles or something, you know, like it's a big thing. So the Muladhara person benefits from this energy because it moves everything. On the reverse way, when such a person has made it up, as the spiritual influence is coming down, such a person has a very great power of accomplishment. Like if you look at the history of the 20th century yoga 
and spirituality, you will find mostly yogis that have been earth signs astrologically, which means who had a good muladhara. From Shivananda to Ramana Maharishi and from Sri Yukteswar to Yogananda, from Maananda Mai to Gurdjieff, and the list could continue very much, all of them were Tauruses, Virgos, or Capricorns. No? That simply is very strange that the Muladhara, which is the lowest chakra and the furthest away from Sahasrara, can have such an effect. And those of you who do yoga, you know that it's because of the polarity which it creates. It beats like you stretch a bow, and then the more the bow is stretched, the further you go away from the pure spirit, the more the zest is. Thus, Muladhara can give a lot of power, a lot of raw power. It's exactly like you strike oil, and then you say, I'm rich, I'm a multi-multi-millionaire, simply because oil is coming out of my backyard and every day I'm pumping hundreds of barrels of oil. That's it. You know? it's, it, Muladhara is your oil. You have oil in your backyard and a lot of things can happen. But of course, when Muladhara is twisted, that means imbalanced, impure, disharmonious, it can cause huge problems. So the people who have uh, damaged Muladhara, they don't go beyond the first level of spirituality. I have known tons of people who were even afraid to come to a yoga course. This paranoid fear, you know, which is irrational. You know, why, why would you be afraid? To, what will they do to you? You know, if you go to China, they give you an anal swab for... Uh, COVID-19, you know, but if you come to a yoga course, nobody will give you an anal swab or anything. You know, it's like it's perfectly safe. Why would you have an irrational fear? Let me try this yoga for a month or for six months and see what's the big deal about it or something. No, this is a muladhara which keeps you out of spirituality completely. It has the dimensions of fear and this fear is horrible completely irrational, going to panic attacks and other super irrational things. It has the dimension of a total laziness, like the biggest passive laziness in the world. You know, oh, I read a book of yoga and it sounded interesting, but I wouldn't move a finger. Like uh, yoga, immortality, and freedom. Yeah, man, if you can give those to me right like this. Look, I opened my mouth for some immortality and freedom. Give it to me. No, it's like, are you willing to at least go to the yoga hall? And no, 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 man. No way. You know, and so on. So fear, laziness, a monstrous greed which reflects either in food or it can easily become greed for physical objects, possessions, land, money, security of different kinds. And thus, it is important to have a clean muladhara. People who manage to pass this first filter, 
It's exactly like you have police filters, you know, and some people can pass the first and they get stopped at the second, you know. Each chakra is like a stop where you pass or you don't pass. The people who pass this one, they will have at least the activity. They will start doing. They are not afraid. They are not lazy. They are not blinded by greed and so on. And at the same time, if they have a good muladhara, their muladhara will get cleaner and cleaner. If you practice vegetarian diet, if you practice sattvic diet, if you do hatha yoga regularly, if you practice other and other things, meditations and many, many other things which come together as a package with yoga, your muladhara will get cleaner and cleaner. So even if in the beginning you had some hurdles, it can be solved to a large extent. Sometimes... Your muladhara, if you are a person with muladhara, needs radical conditions. Like, for example, uh, women who have a big muladhara, even if that muladhara is relatively clean, which means they don't have paranoid fears and other such things, they always have difficulties in subliming this raw energy. And for such women, a lot of hatha yoga, a lot of fasting and yang diet, and perhaps a lot of tantric sexuality will help them in dealing with this. What is a quality can at the same time be a burden. So one has to uh, evaluate it carefully. And then you go to the filter of Svadhisthana. And in Svadhisthana... Of course, the biggest problem is the emotions. And um, I have not seen so many people dying because, spiritually dying, because they could not surpass their muladhara. But I definitely have seen most people dying spiritually because they could not surpass their svadhisthana. Like out of the many students who started and got drowned along the path, metaphorically speaking, of course, uh, most of them was because they could not cope with their emotional nature. Svadhisthana comes up with expectations, dreams, fantasy, living in illusion, living in Maya, living in Fata Morgana and glamour, having expectations of a million types, being fashionable, being completely conditioned by other people's opinions, being gregarious, being dependent on socializing and on social reactions. And um, while this could be a great talent, like if you go to Nirvana and come back to a wonderful Svadhisthana you can become one of the most charismatic person in the world. There have been gurus that drove the world nuts because they were very charismatic people. And charismatic for a spiritual person is good. It's really good, especially if you choose to be a teacher because then you can spread the message beautifully. No? But... Until you reach there, the downside of it is that the person is drowning in this watery, emotional nature 
Remember, the water has no personality because it assumes any shape you want it to assume. So water is like actors. Today they can play a monster, a serial killer, and in the next movie they can play a saint or some. That's the water. Actorship, Hollywood, everything is a Svadistana machine because you are assuming any shape, playing any role, could be anybody. No, and unfortunately, this is lacking a spine. You could not go to Buddha and say, Buddha, you are all and everything. You have conquered nirvana. You have reached everything a human being can reach. And you are not afraid that you are going to hell or that you are falling back, sliding back into forgetfulness and so on. Would you like to play in a Hollywood movie where you are a sexual maniac and a masturbator? It's a game. It's a play, man. You are just an actor. No? Buddha would be like this. He'd say, I never. I don't indulge. No, I don't want to show to the world such a face. Like, yes, a spirit can be everything, but not me. There are lots of masturbators and Swadistanistic losers out there. I'm not one of them. But, uh, you know, aren't you too proud? <clears throat> aren't you too rigid? Aren't you too stiff? Like, aren't you supposed to just let go and be everything and nothing? That's what Svadistanistic people think. When New Age Svadistanistic people imagine spirituality, they imagine spirituality in a totally Svadistanistic weird way. <clears throat> and they bring such skewed arguments. And um, therefore, the obstacle of Svadistana is getting lost in this Maya. This Maya, we call it generally, it means metaphysically something much bigger, but this Maya of Vishnu, this living in illusion, is very powerful on Svadistana. And uh, when you have a big clean Svadistana, you are able to use it. Because, for example, you can create magic. There are 72 virgins waiting for you in paradise. Do you know? What's this? It's a spiritual Svadistana. It's that somebody is promising you something and it makes it like it looks like Alibaba's cave. It's the treasure cave, you know? And somebody from Japanese Zen would say, this is so much bullshit. Life is life. Death is death. Like Dogen, when he died, he said, when you live, there is the flavor of life. When you die, he was just dying. He died in less than five minutes after he said this, you know. He said, when you die, there is only the flavor of death. And he died. No, like the Zen philosophy is completely without this Vadistana. It's sometimes painfully dry because it's like there is no illusion. The Zen masters say if you meet Buddha on the street, kill him. Because Buddha is just a dream from the standpoint of this Vadistanistic person. Buddha is an expectation. You expect and you project a lot of beautiful things about how beautiful Buddha is. 
Even the fact that you see a statue of Buddha and it's made beautiful. No? Some people in China who went out of this, they started making fat Buddhas. No, like Buddha is not slim and young and beautiful. He's a fat one and still is a Buddha. So live with that. No? In the meaning that even the fact that you make a beautiful Buddha is a Svadhisthanistic thing. Okay, you can say, isn't there some Vishuddha to it because of the aesthetic sense? Yes, there is, of course. Many of these Buddha statues have a lot of Vishuddha and art in it and aesthetics in it. But there is also a Svadhisthanistic thing because it's full of expectations. It projects a myth. It projects a legend. And you trust in that legend. Is it Useful? One of my teachers when I was young was very masterly at this. And every time he projected this sort of spiritual maya, I went home and practiced yoga like crazy for hours and hours. That means it motivated me. I responded to his myths. He gave me a motivation which was very good. So I have never been upset that he did that to me. No, I was always grateful because he actually gave me, he told me a fairy tale and that fairy tale helped me to go deeper. Great. So Svadhisthana can be used. And if you become a magician, like for example, a person with Tantra and this, then you can create such an amazing thing. No, you can create such an amazing thing in which there will be a lot of Walt Disney. There will be a lot of illusions. Many people accuse the spiritual masters that in different traditions they created this spiritual Maya as to oppose the worldly Maya. No, here is the castle of Mickey Mouse. You know, instead of doing that, you can visit the castle of Mickey Mouse. No, and some people will come to visit the castle of Buddha or of Mickey Mouse or of whoever. You know, but in the end of the day, this Vadistana can be used. If demonic people use their Vadistana to tell you there is nothing, man. Better get yourself a job and work like a slave for David Rockefeller and uh, get old and have two kids and then die. And that's it. That's all you can expect from life. That's the Maya which is given. That, hey, you are a proletarian. You are working class. 99.9% of humanity has to put their head down and work in a global village. It's globalization. There are a few super rich people which you don't know and you don't know what they do and what their rights are in this world. And for the rest, just do what everybody does. Go to Hong Kong and go at 7 o'clock at a job and come back at 5 p.m. and you are squeezed like a lemon and you've made some money to survive or if you are a bit better educated, you made a bit more money so you can travel a little bit and do some fun things. That's it. You know, it's com- this is a negative Maya. This is the Maya which is given to people in which people are told you can't change that. You can't do anything. That's all you can get. Live with it. Put your head down and accept mediocrity. 
And then it's okay for Jesus or for the prophet Muhammad to come and tell you there is a place where 72 virgins can give you blowjobs nonstop. You just have to deserve to reach there. No, it's like it sounds better than working from morning till evening in Hong Kong, you know, like being some Chinese working ant, you know, like I, I want something else for my life. So do not think that spiritual people cannot weave a Maya, a counter Maya, a sort of Maya. The Vijnana Bhairava Tantra says it clearly. Many things are being said about God, Shiva, Bhairava, and most of them are like the candies which an Indian mother gives to her child to take medicine. Because medicine, if you want to take neem leaves, they are bitter like hell. And then mama is giving you some sugar candies and says, if you take the neem, here is some chocolate for you. You It's the same with spirituality. If you will stand on your head for long enough, there will be some blowjobs in paradise for you. You know, it's it's a candy. You know, it doesn't tell you exactly what it is. So from the standpoint of Svadhisthana, there is a positive part of it because it motivates people fantastically much, especially on a water planet as we are, people are motivated. And this tendency of some of the Zen people, Super Manipura Dry, to kill Svadhisthana completely, it's not welcome, in my opinion. It's like it's cutting out a chakra completely. Svadhisthana is not good, not bad. It has its good parts. It has its charismatic parts. People need dreams. And Svadhisthana allows you to do that. Unfortunately, I see people drying in this emo nature of Svadhisthana where people are just, uh, you know, and completely... And you ask them... Why are you like this? Why don't you? I don't know. That's how I feel. Like, like, okay. No, it's like, what do you need? A cold shower, a beating, or something. You know, go to a Zen monastery in Japan and live there for six years to kill this. You know, to if that's what you are like. You know, but such people, of course, will not even go to a Zen monastery because it's like completely killing everything. And then we go to Manipura, and Manipura is giving you the spine. Like, I don't want to be. I want to be special, definitely. I want to be different. But when that Manipura is imbalanced, it becomes too much. And that special is, I want to be special at any cost. I want to be special even if I'm a serial killer, even if I embezzled millions and gazillions of dollars, even if I do this, even if I do that even if I lie and cheat and start wars and whatever, I want to be special. That's the level of the leaders of this planet. People like uh, the Rockefeller, which I just mentioned, and others less known than him, who are the real people who have the thousands of trillions of gazillions of the real money. These people have this sick Manipura in which they want to be special, they want to rule, and you can see that even in a crisis like Corona and so on, it appears very clearly. There is a document of infamy, there is a booklet (coughs) published 
or allegedly produced, put on paper, published later, allegedly produced in 1898, two, two years before the year 900, 1900. And in that booklet, on the first page, when it starts with the premises, it says, given the fact that the nature of all people is inferior and animalistic, then they have to be ruled mercilessly, exactly as swine in a herd. Like that's where it starts from. It starts from the fact that from the level of Manipura, when Manipura is ugly <coughs> and sick, <coughs> then people are a herd of swine and there is zero tolerance and zero mercy. And being the next Genghis Khan or the next Napoleon is absolutely no problem. Because if you try to treat people honorably, they will shit on you. Or like Jesus says, they will trample on the pearls and turn against you. But you can see immediately where the problem is that Jesus proposing a solution in Anahata, he never says, since people are inferior baboons, fuck them all, then you should rule them mercilessly. Don't treat them in any gentlemanly way. <clears throat> if some people rise and they have Manipura of leaders, take them as your associates in your ring of power. But all the rest, just treat them as evil from the beginning. From the Don't see any hope with them. There is no hope. You know, history shows that whenever people were given power or something, they abused it, they misbehaved, they got corrupted, and it's an illusion to think that somebody is going to be so holy. Of course, these people absolutely hate Jesus or the likes of them, all the saints, all the pure saints of history, because that's the counterexample which they don't like to see. Hey, there is a 0.01% who are not like that. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? We can put all those 0.01% in a concentration camp. And the rest, for the rest, what we said is valid. It stays valid. There's no hope for those. Either they are muladharistic or svadistanistic or with a bad manipura. They are like this. And therefore, you should not try to transfigure them. That's a bad Manipura. We saw some movies with martial arts. Those people thought that everybody is a killer. Everybody is selfish. Everybody just wants to win. Everybody is a bastard. And it was not only that Sanshiro Sugata beat them. But afterwards, he was feeding them and nursing them, being very kind. And only then they said, we have lost. No, we have lost because if this guy would have beaten us and thrown us to the garbage, <clears throat> then he demonstrates he's a wolf stronger than us. We found our godfather, you know, we found a wolf stronger than my wolf. But still he's a wolf. But when I see that he behaves 
like a Buddha, that he behaves with compassion and balance, this is surprising. Much from the teachings of Socrates in Greece are on Manipura. Socrates is not touching, he's touching some things, of course, of intelligence in Ajna, <clears throat> purity in Vishuddha, not so much Anahata in his teachings, more you find, if you want Greek antiquity, more in Plato or others. But Socrates gives teachings of a healthy Manipura, of a healthy society on Manipura. The same thing is praised so much in Chinese culture and generally in Asia, is given by Confucius. Confucius, the disciple of Lao Tzu, he's not teaching so much about enlightenment as much as he's teaching about an enlightened society on Manipura, Chinese, typically Chinese, with balance, with harmony, with generosity, with noble feelings, with all that. So a bad Manipura generates an egoism because remember Manipura is the chakra of personality. Please somebody give me a sign when it's 10 o'clock so I know to diminish things down. Yeah, just give me this sign and I will know. So uh, bad Manipura, you know Manipura is the chakra of personality. A bad Manipura means a bad personality. They are even called in medicine personality disorders like megalomania, paranoia, schizophrenia, different forms and so on. <clears throat> it's personality disorders. A personality disorder automatically shows that that person's manipura is very fucked up, very impure, very imbalanced, very distorted. And if it just grows, because the person does just Udiana Bandas and Naulis, it just becomes more powerful but still distorted. So there needs to be purification, balancing. A balanced Manipura makes that you are not a jellyfish. I almost never saw spiritual practitioners who had only Muladhara and Svadhisthana. I have a huge aspiration from Muladhara and a huge vitality, and I have an excellent imagination that I'm looking forward to Mickey Mouse, Vishnu, or whatever it is, and I'm working and doing things. Definitely people who have spiritual practice, and they have something above as well, something in Anahata, Vishuddha, <clears throat> Ajna, or even Manipura. And therefore, have I seen spiritual practitioners without too much Manipura? Yes. Like, for example, those of you who have seen or who see that movie about that Christian saint, Saint Joseph of Cupertino, the one who was levitating and who was a real weird, kinesthetic, bizarre person. You don't see almost any Manipura. It's true, he was stubbornly doing his things, but he doesn't manifest too much Manipura. He was a bit of a moron, a bit of an idiot, you know, the Manipura people are more fiery, they try to look smart, they try to answer back, they, you know, like if you tell them, you know, did you know that uh, you could do this uh, in Copangan, they would say, oh yeah, man, that's really, you know, like, they would try to show that they are online, that they are uh, on, <clears throat> that uh, I'm not the village moron or something like this, no, that guy was the village moron, 
and still God made him float in the air. And because he had Anahata, Vishuddha, other things. So if you would have, maybe he had a good Muladhara, good aspiration. Good, maybe he had some good imagination in Svadhisthana. Maybe his Manipura was weak. No? And then in the daily life, this would not be the kind of person who goes to Tibet to convert Tibet to Buddhism, like Padmasambhava. You have to be really Manipuristic to go and say, now Tibet becomes Buddhist because I went to Tibet. You know? Or Jesus comes and says, now there is a new covenant between man and God. You don't need to burn lambs and you don't need to cut the foreskin of boys anymore. Now you just drink water and wine, wine and whatever, bread, thinking of me, and that's the new covenant. That's good enough. <clears throat> don't you need to have Manipura to think like this, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you are making a difference? There have been saints who have gone to Japan to convert Japan to the Catholicism, to the Catholic Christianity. No? Japanese people did have a lot of Manipura, but Xavier Kiefer and others is a Catholic saint who did that. They were having an equally big Manipura, you know, like they were going there to change the world, to do something, you know. So people who have Manipura in spirituality, they are vertical. They are samurai-like. They, they want to act. They want to do. They want to serve. They want to change the world. If Manipura is sick, they get lost in power games. They get lost into personality disorders. They get lost in all sorts of other miseries. And eventually, here is the dictum which says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a false dictum. It's not true. It did not corrupt Jesus. It did not corrupt Buddha. It did not corrupt Milarepa, although he had the power to change the rotation of the earth on its axis if he wanted. It did not corrupt Saint Mark of Ethiopia, who moved the mountain by mistakenly spoken to that mountain, speaking to that mountain. So it's not true. Power corrupts because people have a bad Manipura, and in the moment when you put power in it, it goes in all the wrong channels. And Manipura is already imbalanced, impure, and it goes in the wrong place. But if somebody is struggling with their Manipura, no? Like when El Sid, remember those of you who saw El Sid, he had been treated like shit by his king, even tortured, his wife and kids kidnapped, and so on, like really, really bad treatment, treated badly to the bone. And when he conquered the city of Valencia or whatever city he conquered from the Moors in the south of <clears throat> Spain, the people said, proclaim yourself king. Like you don't owe anything to Alfonso, who is a jerk. No, N nobody supported you with anything. On the contrary, they imprisoned your kids and your wife and they threatened you. And they, you know, become a king, have your own kingdom. We are all going to serve you. You are the perfect king. You are harmonious on Manipura. You will not make any abuse. You are the man who really deserves to be a leader. 
And the Alcid turns to the city and he says, I take the city of Valencia in the name of Alfonso, king of Leon and Asturias and so on. And like, he doesn't fall for it. That's a perfect Manipura. That's the perfect Manipura. No, he doesn't get corrupted by power in any way whatsoever. And he is ready to give his life. No? And he serves. He serves. Because in the end, we all serve. Jesus served God the Father. Many, many, many other saints, men and women in the history of this mankind, they served their religion, their God, their guru. They're the things which were holy for them. And in this way, it's not true that power corrupts always. But when you have a dirty Manipura, then yes, it corrupts. That's why many of the people in the religion, they avoid power because they are afraid that they will not be able to handle this power. And uh, it, goes, it goes for all of us. This is valid for all of us. Whenever you reach a position of power, either temporal or spiritual, there are tests about the power. So, if you have no Manipura, you are a jellyfish, even if you are a saint. You are some guy who lives in a place, and maybe when he's alone, he levitates and he's with God, but he is the village moron. He is like... And then I pray to Virgin Mary. But no Manipura. I'm jumping directly from my vital energy to Anahata, Vishuddha, Sahasrara, something, but no Manipura. Hey, why didn't this reluctant saint go around like Francis of Assisi or something, preaching, doing? No, no. Francis of Assisi probably had much more Manipura than this guy was having. No. So there will be even spiritual practitioners who don't have this Expansion, expansion, expand. One of the ex-managers of Agama was asking me, Swamiji, do you want to conquer the whole island or something? No, the whole world, the whole universe if possible, but in a harmonious way, not by becoming tyrannical with anything. No, I don't need to be a tyrant. I just need to have the activity, the service going on. You know? So we move to Anahata Chakra, and Anahata Chakra already starts having no problems with Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, there are problems. You all know that in Anahata Chakra, the only problem really is the superficiality. I live, I come from a country where there is a lot of Anahata. And it seems that the national soul of my country is an air country, is air, it's made of air. No, it belongs to the astrological sign of Aquarius. No. And my first spiritual teacher told me when he taught me about some of these things, you know, and he said, We Romanians, and then he used the proverb, an expression, which in Romania says, Fog de Pae Palalae, and it means a fire fed with straw, a fire made of straw, 
straw. You know what the cows are eating, what the oil, hay, uh, a fire of hay, which is just a big flame. No? Like you never expect, you know, when you burn coal, the coal is burning for two hours and it can melt iron. But hay or paper, it burns happily for 30 seconds, makes a big flame, and then it's gone. So he simply was referring to the poison of Anahata Chakra. That in Anahata Chakra, uh, you know, we had people who came to Agama, and we still have some now, by the way, you know, just watch and see for those of you who are in the administration and know what I'm talking about. We had people who say, I want to pay for eight years of courses of Agama. Now, like I have the money, you know, this is straw fire. Those people disappeared in less than six months from Agama. They never made it even to level five or something like this. No, This is something which comes from the imbalanced Anahata. The imbalanced Anahata gives a sort of an extraordinary enthusiasm that you feel, man, I want to end my life here. I want to stay with Swami Vivekananda Ji. And when I die, please make a stupa in his garden here. Bury me here. My life belongs to Kopangan and to Agama and to Swami Vivekananda Ji. You know, like, this is straw fire. You can never take it seriously. This is just a big flame. You know, because people who are more melancholic or ala milarepa or something, they don't make big statements. But you can see that they are doing, doing, doing. You know, there is no need to flap your wings and say, ha, 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 here I will be forever, I think. I found what I was dreaming about. Yes, in six years, the silent one will still be there practicing consistently and you will be gone to other places. That's why when Anahata has this flaw, it gives a superficiality. It's very beautiful. Like people who have Anahata because we are in a tantric school and this thing of relationships is working all day long. People who have Anahata, they have been in love with everybody in the school. Like every three months, they fall in maximum. Every one month, they fall in love with someone else, someone else, someone else, someone else, someone else. And every time, it's completely sincere. It's completely pure. It's completely beautiful. You can see it on their faces. They are walking 10 centimeters above the ground. But if you would ask them, are you aware that this is going to change in one month? They can never see it. They are blinded by it in the meaning that uh, they don't see that it's a transient thing and it's a beautiful energy which comes and goes. And unfortunately, if the same thing is about your love for God and if the same thing is about your devotion to serve Shiva and if the same thing is about you living a life of spirituality... It will not work. Paul, the apostle of Christ, he got enlightened on the road to Damascus. He became blind. Peter prayed for him, took away his blindness, which was from God. It was a God-induced blindness, like the blindness of Edgar Cayce in the 20th century. 
And then because of the social and physical circumstances, he had to go to the city of Jaffa in today's Israel, if I remember correctly, and there to wait for a sign. Paul lived in the house of a net weaver, a fisherman, a man who was making nets for fishermen, and he was the apprentice of this guy, and he did not talk about God, preach about God, participate to any major Christian spiritual event for the next 80 years. I can promise you that Paul was not having superficiality on Anahata. Because any person that has superficiality on Anahata would have died of boredom waiting for eight years so that Peter takes the finger out of his ass and gives him a green light to do something for the Christian community. Nobody resists that. That's the sort of test which in Japan, in Tibet, in India sometimes, the gurus were giving to their disciples to make sure that they are not enlightened by this straw fire, which sooner or later, and then you know what's happening. People don't want to acknowledge that the straw fire has gone, and they keep on living a phony life. They go to a monastery because they said, I discovered Jesus, and I started crying my heart out, and I fell in love, and I went and I became a monk or a nun. And then six months later, the love story with Jesus is over. But they don't come out of the monastery because it's a sin. It's ugly. It shows superficiality. It shows that you are not seriously committed. And then they don't come out anymore. But then their life, which they will live in the next 40 years in that monastery, is a fake. That's why there are so many fake monks and nuns and so on. Because at one point in their life, for sure, they fell in love. But then that love, and they didn't know how to get it back. And thus, a good anahata is a detachment, it is love, it is transcendence, it is that people want to mock you, humiliate you, that people want to destroy your physical body, that people want to take something from you, you know, somebody is asking for your shirt. Give him your coat as well, says Jesus. You know, like people want to rip you off. People want to abuse you in all the possible ways. And the Anahata people are the perfect targets for being abused like this because they are the kind ones. They are gentle as doves. No? But, so Anahata gives you an amazing detachment. And like you can go to God whatever the price is. The communists in Romania in the 1940s and 50s, they arrested everybody who had a Christian background, active, and they put them in prisons. And after 1990, when the, Christian, when the communists fell, the Christian mystics who still survived in Romania, they said, lucky with the communism, because it has filled up the prisons with saints. Like so many people have been tortured, killed, beaten, martyrized. And there were a few tens or hundreds of them who never gave up, never broke, never. You know, they were killed. There are many of them. It's not known where they are buried. 
because the communists assassinating them in prison and then buried them like a dog. They just dig the ditch somewhere and they just threw the body and there's not a cross, a sign, nothing. There are many famous ones whose body is not even known where it is. Even today, 30 years after the communists fell, nobody could find out where that body was buried. Not one, many are like this. And thus, this is Anahata, the power of Anahata, that even if you take people to prison and so on, they will resist because their love is idealistic and it's beyond the body, it's beyond social honors, it's beyond the victory of your own personality, it's beyond, it just wants to fulfill the love of God. And it's ready to neglect food, to neglect comfort, to neglect the body. The person becomes a little bit like an angel. Like it's, it's very vata. It's almost like you are not in the body anymore. And it's like, you know, doesn't matter. No, but they humiliate it. They beat you. They stole everything from it. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like only God matters. This is the power of Anahata, which is the main power in Kali Yuga. Brahmakrishna and other people have said it clearly. You know, it's bhakti yoga, bhakti, 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 bhakti. Those who love, they are the ones who can do and do and do and endure the miseries of this world. But uh, anahata has its layer of superficiality, which gives you the impression that you are ready to go into the big adventure, but then your feet are very short, as they say. You try to run, but running with short legs, it doesn't work, you know, because you are not uh, made for a marathon. You can run 10 meters and then you discover, oops, I'm not made for the big race. And then, of course, here it's not that uh, anahata needs to be balanced. That's an imbalanced, impure, disharmonious anahata. It's not the anahata of the people who endured forever, forever and ever they would endure. Then with Vishuddha Chakra, it's definitely less and less problems. Vishuddha Chakra has, will give you the problem, the obstacle, that you can become too cold and too isolated. Like You are like Leonardo da Vinci. You are like um, Albert Einstein or something. And the world around you is made of morons and baboons. And the only thing to do is just to stay away from them. You know, it's like you don't want to, you want to mingle in as little things, you know, either you are an artist or a scientist or a mystic or what you are, you would go like a jnani, you will go on a hill and live in a cave, be like Ramana Maharishi, spent 30 years meditating in the basements of caves from Tiruvannamalai or someplace like this, and not want to be with anybody, not want to. This is not really the way to spirituality, because you saw that God, for example, Jesus, who is an avatara, he did his practice, and then he came in the middle of the world and did something for the world. Krishna, who is another avatara, he collaborated with the Pandavas, he spoke to Arjuna, he taught about karma yoga, he did something for the world. He participated in historical events. Abhinava Gupta, who is suspected of having been an avatara, 
Abhinavagupta wrote Tantra Loka, the only comprehensive treatise on Tantra in the history of India. He was a great teacher. He wrote many things and he, of course, excelled in philosophy, dance, music, arts, and so on. Ramakrishna, who is also supposed to have been a avatara, minor or not, he is the one who restarted yoga and the Hindu things in the 19th century, where after the Mughal rulership, yoga and these things have been down for six centuries in the history of India, and it is with Ramakrishna. Like, if I'm asking you, please name a guru, a big guru, before Ramakrishna, you will be at a loss. Only those of you who know the history of yoga very well, you know, but uh, not before the 12th century, between the 12th century and Ramakrishna. No, nobody. Of course they have been. Svatmarama has been there, the Guru Geranda has been there, and others, but you don't know of them because maybe you haven't studied thoroughly the academia about the history of yoga. But if I'm asking you, tell me big gurus of yoga after Ramakrishna, you will come and say, Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, Bedananda, all the disciples of Ramakrishna. Then, uh, Lahiri Mahasaya, Sri Yuktesvar, Yogananda. Then, uh, um, Ramana Maharishi, which I have. Then, Mahananda Mai. Then, Shivananda. Then, the, like, you are going to find Aurobindo and so on. All these are having their root in Ramakrishna. Without Ramakrishna, the new yoga, the new wouldn't have existed as much as people think. Uh, so, all these people have done something. Vishuddha feels often like not doing much. Not doing much. Those of you who saw the movie about Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, the agony and the ecstasy, you know that the Pope had to rape him a couple of times, had to force him, to threaten him with prison to whatever, to really, really push him, because uh, Michelangelo would have done it, but wouldn't have done it, but would have done it, but in very special conditions imposed by his own brain, only like this or only like that, you know? And that's just a sort of puritanism on Vishuddha, which prevents people from materializing goals. There's been a guru in India called Meher Baba, who practiced Mauna for 40 years. He really had a good Vishuddha. And in the end, he is one of the biggest guru flops in the 20th century history of India because he claimed that he was the new Messiah and this and that, but he never took the finger out of his ass to talk, to walk, to do, to write, to do this or to do that because he was always too much Vishuddhistic, Puritanistic, Staying in his silence and, you know, and he thought that anybody will understand how precious he was. Well, they didn't. Because you need to be like Jesus. You need to come and slap them over their head and say, man, stop being baboons, you know. Get up and do something and so on. It's true, you get crucified in the process, but, you know, at least you do something. So Vishuddha has this problem that people are in a way too detached, too puritanic. They don't want to touch the mud of existence, but the quality of it is an incredibly intense aspiration. I think sometimes, I am sure actually, that the aspiration on Vishuddha is even more mad than the aspiration of Anahata. 
I told you that I know of the case of people who had a big anahata and they loved God and they were put in prison, tortured, mutilated, killed and so on, and they resisted. Vishuddha would be more than that. Vishuddha would be like there is a spiritual reality, which is Ramakrishna had a little bit of this, which is so perfect, so pure, so much beyond the understanding of the average human being that not to be devoted to it is like the ultimate crime. Ramakrishna, when he experienced Vishuddha Chakra, he said, I could not even talk to my mother because when she said, uh, your sweater is getting holes in it, you should change it. And Ramakrishna was like, leave me alone with the fucking sweater, you know? He behaved like a madman. Like, everything you can do is talk to me about the sweater. But why don't you talk to me about Lord Vishnu? That's what I want to hear. Vishnu, Vishnu, Vishnu. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. That's what I want all day long. And he said, I ran screaming. I ran like a maniac in the forest nearby. And there, I, my mouth was pouring words of praise for God. Like, that's all I could do. Holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. You know, that's why you are like an angel. The angels are sitting, the seraphims and so on, they are sitting in front of the throne of God. And all they can say is not God. Planet Earth sucks. No? Instead of this, the only thing they can say is, Holy, holy, holy are thou God. You know, it's like, that's all to be said. You know, you can't stop from praising, worshipping, you know. That's Vishuddha. And uh, the aspiration of Vishuddha is formidable because the people who have this, they are completely detached from sex, body, honors, praise, name and fame, money, power, even love. You know, they say, I don't even need to feel the love of God. I, I just need to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. You know, and if, if, love, if God doesn't love me back because he wants to test me for 300 years, I will just go on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. You know, it's like, I don't need anything. I just need this purity, this praise. This is already a level which is very rare. Ramakrishna experienced it. A few others experienced it in the world of yoga and, of course, in the world of saints as well. And there are no other major problems as you go so high. Of course, metaphysically, we are being told by different gurus that huge temptations can appear there. Like when Jesus fasted for 40 days, and the 40-day fast is opening your Vishuddha chakra, when Jesus fasted for 40 days, first thing which happened, he was in today's Jericho, east of Jerusalem. And when he fasted for 40 days, the first thing which happened is that the devil came and tempted him, told him, now that you've become so big, we can give you the whole power over the planet Earth. And his answer was, fuck off. You know, don't, 
you don't compare to God, not even far, far away. No, and he tempted him three times. No, so on Vishuddha, there can be when you acquire a level there, there can be a level of uh, spiritual testing, but it's beyond, you know, how many people have been tempted like Jesus, try to think, in the history of the planet Earth. <clears throat> and then there is Ajna Chakra. In Ajna Chakra, the distortions are only the distortions that we can see that things are big, great, there is a contact with the cosmic mind, people may be endowed with clairvoyance or other exceptional abilities, and sometimes our own mind can be so disturbed that we get lost in the labyrinth of the mind. Our mind is not enlightened by Sahasrara, and there is a barrage, there is a blockage, which is karmic. And um, there are some signs, the Tibetans have taught us some signs by which you can identify, like see it on people. That, that's not essential, but sometimes uh, it's there, and sometimes the people who have this big ajna, they can take it in a very wrong direction. And the worst thing is that such people will become atheists, Satanists, Marxists, materialists, simply because they cannot see God because of too much intelligence. There is too much mind. And some people who have this too much mind, they know. Gerard Croisset, the Dutch clairvoyant, who was of Jewish origin but living in Holland, he said, my mind is colossal and I can see things which normal people can't even dream. But, he said, I am aware that there exists a sphere of consciousness above the sphere of my mind, and I know that that is the Alpha and the Omega, that is everything, but I don't have access there. Funnily, a great clairvoyant who could discover missing people and you know, like his mind could do remote viewing and everything else amazingly, he did not have access to Sahasrara and his karma was not to meet with Gurdjieff or to meet with, I don't know whom, with Sri Aurobindo you know, and be guided he knew that there is something above. He knew that he doesn't have access. But the question is, why didn't he look through the yellow pages to see if there was somebody who could help him with that? Because if he would have talked with Aurobindo, Aurobindo was super intelligent and would have convinced him that he can help him and that there is something. How didn't Gerard Croisset meet with Aurobindo? That's exactly the thing, you know, like his karma was not complete. So on Ajna Chakra, there are some last-minute karmic blockages, some last-minute karmic blockages, which make that the person who has some Ajna Chakra has some qualities of devas, has some qualities of deities, of gods or goddesses, and still not being able to find God the center of the labyrinth, the needle in the haystack, 
is still not available to them. I would say, if I wouldn't know this, that Gerard Croisset or somebody like him, whoever, the other guy, Edgar Casey, and many others, they would have been the best candidates in Europe to become enlightened beings in the 20th century, especially with the opening that you could just book an airplane and go to India and sit at the feet of Shivananda or Aurobindo or some or Mananda Mai and get some guidance. And they did not. They did not. So in Ajna, there are some very incomprehensible karmic causal blockages high in the causal levels. And those things can make, if a person is not longing for Sahasrara, if a person is not longing for God in his full form, to get stuck in the middle. That's why Patanjali, one of the biggest gurus in Ajna Chakra Yoga, in Raja Yoga, in Indian history, he warns very clearly. He says there can be a level where even gods and goddesses from the highest causal worlds can come to you and propose to you to join them, to be one of them. And the yogi, says Patanjali, should say no. Thank you. Because I've got a target which is bigger than you. That's beautifully made in the movie, which you all have to see at least once in your life, the famous Holy Mountain of Alexander Jodorowsky, where somebody is coming and they reach to Pantheon City, and that's where the gods are, and they do all sorts of cities and so on, and they tell them, stay with us, be happy forever, drink ambrosia and all that, and the master says, no, that's not the end of the road. The end of the road is the top of the mountain, we have to climb on the top of the mountain. So, in this way, even Ajna Chakra does have some incomprehensible blockages in which sometimes it's exactly like even an Ajna Chakra person sees but doesn't see everything. For me, a typical example of the modern times is uh, this Darren Brown, this guy who does hypnotism. He ex exhibits... a Siddhis on Ajna Chakra, and he doesn't believe in Siddhis, and he doesn't believe in God. And I could bet that his body is bearing some of the Tibetan marks, which show exactly this condition of being stuck. Stuck between... Of course, eventually he will get there. But eventually, says, probably not in this lifetime... Or probably not in this lifetime without a heroic effort in which somebody is doing like something unheard of, like somebody breaking the chains in which he or she is chained. So that's the world of Ajna Chakra because there the obstacles are at the level of karma and maya and these kinds of things. In this way, I tried tonight to tell you that in each chakra, up till Sahasrara, Sahasrara is not a chakra, so you don't have a problem there. I cannot comment on Sahasrara because there is no such thing. The only terrible thing which can happen in Sahasrara is that if you reach to God way too much, you die. In max in 20 days, in 30 days, you leave your body. No? That's exactly what the Jewish prophet said when they said nobody can see God and live. 
Like if you get to see God, you are so much merged that you have gone beyond what the human body can tolerate. But that's not a sad event. It can be, look scary, sound scary for uh, earthlings. But it doesn't represent anything negative that somebody has gone in Sahasrara so much that they shot like a rocket out of this world. And that's not sad at all. It's a big spiritual victory. But from the standpoint of the earthlings, we think that our planet is such a wonderful place to be that everybody should stay here and rub shoulders with us, you know, because that's, uh, that's the place to be, that's what to do. It's not entirely true. Of course, there is compassion. There are people with a spiritual mission like avatars and others who come to earth. That's a totally different story. And uh, therefore, with Sahasrara, there is no problem whatsoever. With all the other six chakras, there can be problems. Muladhara is the heaviest and it gives the biggest amount of blindness. Svadhisthana is very strong on planet Earth because it's the dominant chakra of this planet and most people lose their way due to their Svadhisthana. On Manipura, there is the danger of power and personality disorders. On Anahata, it starts, we start seeing the light and there is only this danger of superficiality, not, not focusing constantly. Like, oh, I don't know why I'm so crazy. And I always fall in love, and I always, but I always find something to be enthusiastic about. So, you know, like it's, it, it can disturb your life, but it's not a real problem that you have a heart which is too open. You know, you cannot complain about that. You can complain that you don't control it and say this heart which is so open, I want to give it to Shiva. I want to wake up every morning and sing a song of love for Shiva, you know? And then I eat yang, like I voluntarily put my heart to do the work. Wake up in the morning and sing a song of love for the beloved, no? This is how I put it to work and it doesn't play with me, I play with it. I am the master of Anahata, not some air energies, some vata energies are my master, yeah? Vishuddha, the isolation, isolationist, perfectionistic, puritanic thing, which is a small thing because there have been many gurus who lived in an ivory tower and they couldn't care about the world and lived in caves and lived in monasteries and they never communed with the physical world anymore. And Ajna, which is a strange one, because here there are some unfulfilled karmic things. There are some. And from this, there appears a thing that even when you are in the mind, you understand the power of the mind, and yet you cannot see God. One of my tantric partners in my early life, she believed in reincarnation. She believed in the planes of the universe. She believed in paranormal energies and powers. And she did not believe in God. Until one day, she prayed to Jesus a little bit too much. And then Jesus gave her a kick in the heart. And then the whole world broke apart for her. No? Like there is an exit out of this. But until that time, she was a reader of Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism and bizarre things like this. High-level intellectual but nevertheless, fucked up. And then, because she did the spiritual practice, this changed. This changed. So, for all of you, 
Identify your strengths, identify your weaknesses, identify from which chakra is your aspiration going, feed it, nourish it, and do such things. You know, like let's say you have an aspiration on Zvadistana, then you need stories, you need urban legends, you need fairy tales, you need idols, you need gurus, you need stories about the big saints, what they did. And if somebody is coming and trying to disappoint you and say, you know, actually, Ramakrishna was not so big. Just simply turn on your heels and go and say, I don't want to listen to your shit. Because my aspiration comes from Zvadistana and I need to worship Ramakrishna. I need to believe that Ramakrishna was great. And then you are coming and telling me that he actually was smoking. You know, if I didn't know that, I would have been better off. Because for me, Ramakrishna, like, for example, I did not know that Ramakrishna smoked for at least 10 years in my yoga practice. Now I have fucked it up for you because I told you he did. But there are other such stories that where you simply don't want to hear. Some people say, but I do want to hear. Okay, you don't have an aspiration from Zvadistana. Maybe you have an aspiration from Manipura. If you meet with Buddha on the street... Kill him because he is just a soap bubble. He is just a fairy tale. The truth is not in the legend of Buddha who was born in a Nepali village or whatever. That's bullshit. The truth is that you sit in front of a wall and do zazen for 30 years, giving up everything. No? But a person on Svadhisthana would not manage to do that and would not have the aspiration for that. That's why you have to identify correctly what's your energy, what are your types of aspiration, what are your strengths, what are your impurities and weaknesses, purify the impurities and weaknesses, and enjoy the beauty of your aspiration and of your spiritual practice. Because Ramakrishna, when he was asked, he said, if I had to restart everything, I'd restart everything from scratch and do more than what I did. This is aspiration. Aspiration is that you never give up. You never give up. There is nothing to give, what to give up. And to turn back to mediocrity. And then when you, you know, like I've seen people in you, they dreamed about becoming Buddha. And then when they were 40 years old, they realized they won't become Buddha, which was not true because they could still, of course. But the devil took away their mind. And then they quickly made two kids, got a job. Now they are programming computers, you know. These people, you know, they put a bullet through their head already. You know, like, why, why give up? Why not continue? No, why not impress God with your perseverance and say, you know, even dead, I'm not going, I'm lying in front of your door like a doormat. You know, when you open the door, I will be there. Dead or alive, I will be there. Nothing will take me away from your door. I knock at your door, dead or alive, forever. That's what God wants to see. Then you are getting every gift in the book. So that's why cultivate your aspiration, find your strong points and weak points, and uh, give me more good themes like this to explain to you about spirituality. I think it's enough for today. Thank you all for this wonderful session because I have been through some of my own memories and understandings of this. Uh,